Many of us remember back in October watching news reports as we saw news of a massive storm that was winding up and heading for the East Coast. We read about or saw and watched newsreel from Hurricane Sandy, which was a storm unlike, according to reports, anybody remember, ever remembered. At one point, it was so huge uh, that it was about a thousand miles across. It did billions of dollars of devastation and affected millions of lives, and a number of people lost their lives because of this. I think one of the more shocking photos or, or news clips were those where interviewing people in front of their homes or what used to be their homes and just the disbelief. Many of us don't know what that's like. Just the disbelief saying, my house was here. There's nothing left. And just, just having, trying to understand what that's like, uh, that absolute, complete devastation. I think it's a powerful, powerful storm like that that's very revealing to see the necessity, for us to see the necessity of having a solid foundation, just like in our personal lives. It's the storm surges that reveal whether or not we've chosen a solid foundation. And we've, some of us, experienced those storm surges. Individuals who, facing the loss of a job or have lost their job. Individuals who have loved ones who are deathly sick, some who have lost their lives. Perhaps for you it might be a broken or breaking relationship, someone that's close to you. Well, the good news is there is a way to ensure stability. That's encouraging because we need to hear that. I need to hear that. We need that stability. We all want that firm foundation when the storm hits. We're going to find that out today, what that is. Well, sometimes, quite frankly, I, like me, we develop coping mechanisms or damage control, but that's just like pulling the FEMA trailers up and hoping another storm doesn't come up the coast. The storm surge will come. And if we look around us and think, Am I the only one? Isn't anyone else going through this? Oh, yes. Trust me. There are. Jesus' Sermon on the Mount gives some badly needed answers. And for those few that have not or are not experiencing a storm, wait until it's on your doorstep and start scrambling. Build your foundation now. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 7 going to be looking actually at verses 13 all the way through the end of the chapter, verse 29 today. So Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 through 29. Jesus is nearing the end of his sermon. Now, you've got to remember at the beginning, in chapter 5, verse 1, here it is, Jesus calls a few of his disciples around him. They're outside, they're on the mountain, and he's pointing out different things, talks about the birds flying and the flowers and so forth. So kind of picture yourself like that. By the end, if you look in 728, there are crowds. So apparently from some point, he's speaking to disciples, but there are crowds listening in, in too. And, and 
quite frankly, some of this stuff, as we've been sitting here listening to Jesus, it, it's pretty, pretty radical stuff. Okay? We're not used to this kind of teaching that Jesus is giving. Um, first, he highlights some individuals who weren't in our minds exactly what we would consider blessed. Uh, this is what uh, Pastor Kerry talked about, having the blessed attitudes. Uh, you know, the, the people who are, are poor in spirit, who are meek, who are persecuted. And Jesus says, those people are blessed. Really. And then in, um, he comes out with some pretty bold statements. Okay, In, in 528, if you skim through, I'm going to look through a few of these. In 528, he says that even if, if we even look at a woman with lustful intent, we have committed adultery in our hearts. And in 5.30, a few verses later, he says, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. See, this was no ordinary sermon. Okay, as we're sitting here listening, he's like, okay, this is not run-of-the-mill what the scribes usually teach. Uh, chapter 6, verse uh, 15, if you don't forgive others their trespasses, neither will your father forgive your trespasses. Oh, that's serious. And another bold statement in 624, you cannot serve both God and money. And then, and then in chapter 7, verse 5, we start talking about uh, relationships. You, you take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So all of these, I mean, I just named a few. The whole sermon is full of bold statements like this, and we're just kind of reeling thinking, this is something different. This is new material. Because, see, we as Jews at this time, we're waiting for the coming of the Messiah, and we have these preconceived ideas of what that should look like. Hundreds of years of tradition layered into the law and the prophets. And Jesus is saying, he is the fulfillment. He is fulfilling the law and the prophets. He's turning our religious, cultural, social, economic world upside down with this one sermon. And like us, the expectations are far from reality. And then he comes to chapter 7, verse, verses 7 through 12 that we looked at last week, and he has some very, very affirming words there. So he doesn't beat us down with all that stuff, but he says, Ask, and it will be given you. Seek, and you will find. So he's not making it hopeless for us. But then, in the, between 12 and 13, those two verses, he turns once again. Because he's looking at the people and just saying, but be careful. So he turns from those words, those encouraging words, those affirming words in 7 through 12, to words of caution, discernment, in the remainder of the chapter. First, Verses 13 through 14, he says this, Recognize the one true way. Beware of the wrong path. He says, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. He uses an illustration here that doesn't quite maybe connect with us, but people at that time were very familiar with because most of the cities had, were walled, and there was one main gate where everybody went in and out. Broad uh, road, uh, easy to get to, easy to find. People had their little shops set up along the side, and that was the main, the main thoroughfare. And what he's saying is bypass that and look for the narrow gate. It's kind of like us when you, you, know, if you leave uh, work and you 
uh, check the traffic report. Expressway's clear, 20 minutes from downtown O'Hare. And instead of taking the expressway, you get on the side streets and start making your way home through the alleys and the side streets. That helps us with that illustration somewhat. Uh, but that's the narrow way. That's what he's talking about. See, that's counterintuitive. Human nature tends to steer clear of difficulty. That's the way we are. Um, but following Jesus is not the pretty picture painted by the feel-good so-called theologians. They choose to move on past the narrow gate and follow the crowds. And in verse 14, you see that word narrow. It's actually, for you uh, English majors and Greek geeks, it's perfect participle passive voice. The way is being constricted. Okay, by, an outs- by someone, that Jesus didn't say who, you just say it's being constricted. If you recall, if you're thinking this, uh, is that come up anywhere else in Scripture? Yes, it does. John chapter 14, verse 6. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. And then again in John chapter 10 where he's talking about the sheep and the sheepfold. He said, I am the gate. The narrow gate illustration is not meant to be an all-inclusive or a comprehensive or a standalone metaphor for salvation. Don't get hung up on that. It's just simply a word of caution and a statement of fact. If you take those two verses and put it in one statement, it would be this. Be careful you don't end up on the path that leads to destruction. Very few find the narrow path that leads to life. So first, verses 13 and 14, recognize the one true way, beware the wrong path. Secondly, verses 15 through 20, recognize good fruit, beware false prophets. Verse 15, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You'll recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. Verse 18, a healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. This is where we get the commonly used phrase. You probably used that phrase, maybe, a, a, a wolf in sheep's clothing. And in, in, I don't know if you've ever seen any drawings of it. It's kind of comical where you got this wolf and you have it, uh, like a sheep hide or something laying over top of it. That doesn't deceive anybody. That's not what he's talking about. Okay? He's talking about those false prophets that seem on the surface to be precise and real, but they fool so many. Uh, he uses both these word pictures, the, the, um, the sheep and the wolves and the trees and the fruit, uh, perfectly understood by his agrarian audience. Uh, both are meant to illustrate, they're somewhat layered, I think, uh, to illustrate the danger of false prophets. See, a prophet in ancient Hebrew or, or Jewish culture came with elevated status. There's very high expectations for the office of a prophet. And though for those false prophets, whatever reason, God would set out to lead God's people astray, were in great danger of God's inevitable judgment. Uh, he has a special wrath, I would say, for them. You can read about that throughout the Old Testament, especially reading through the prophets who spoke out against false prophets. Jeremiah 23 is one. The whole chapter, if you were to read the whole chapter of Jer- Jeremiah 23, it's God speaking out against 
the false prophets. Um, he says in uh, 23:18, For who among them has stood in the counsel of the Lord to see and to hear his word, or who has paid attention to his word and listened? Behold the storm of the Lord. Wrath has gone forth. A whirling tempest will burst upon the head of the wicked. The anger of the Lord will not turn back until he has executed and accomplished the intents of his heart. In the latter days, you will understand it clearly. God means business when it comes to false prophets. These were individuals who not just simply fall into judgment. God would actively hunt them down and find them to destroy them. And Jesus says you'll be able to tell them who they are by the fruit. Fruit is another common metaphor throughout Scripture. Here, it's meant to reveal the, the actions and the attitudes and the motives. That reveals what's inside. That's what he's talking about when he talks about fruit here. And there will be fruit, be it bad fruit or good fruit. In 1 John 4.1, John encourages us to test the spirits. Verse 16, uh, the latter half of verse 16, you can see that that is one of those rhetorical questions that Jesus threw out there. Sometimes he did that just to create dissonance and just to make sure that we're with him and saying, oh yeah, that's right. This is one of those easy answers. 16, are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? And you say, of course not. It's common sense. It's the law of nature. And for those who produce bad fruit, the false prophets, there will be ultimate, complete Destruction. That is verse 19. And then you look at verse 20, that phrase is repeated from verse 16. Whenever there's a phrase repeated, you know that's important. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. So he's saying caution for discernment. He's saying be careful. Uh, the prophets, the false prophets, poison basically that produces bad fruit is deceit. He may be doing good things, but is he doing it using manipulation? Is the fruit consistent throughout his life? We're to be discerning. Now, we're not to be judge. That's up to God. That comes next. So first we said, recognize the one true way. Beware of the wrong path in verses 13 to 14. 15 to 20, recognize the good fruit. Beware of the false prophets. And then, verses 21 through 23, recognize true salvation Beware of false claims. Verses 21 through 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me. You workers of lawlessness. Now those references in, in the previous verses, 15 through 20, it's about false prophets deceiving others. They deceive other people. These, this is different. This is self-deception. So much more dangerous. It's like having a fatal disease and you don't have any symptoms and you have no idea that it's there. It's self-deception. Back in Hosea chapter 8, the people of Israel were saying, Our God, we acknowledge you, but, God said, you ignore me. You're guilty of syncretism. They were choosing to worship other gods, thinking that somehow they'd be supplementing their spiritual lives. It was called idolatry. Call it for what it is. 
Only he who does the will of my Father. In in other words, only the person who has the evidence of a changed life, showing the fruit. And the emphasis in verse 22, if you look at verse 22, it says, On that day many will come. Actually, the word many comes first. So the emphasis is that there will be many people who come to me and say, Lord, Lord, we did good things. Isn't that exactly what Jesus warned about in chapter 6, verse 1? If you remember back, if you take a look at that, if you have that open. Um, he says, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. You will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. See, you avoided the warranty. Because you did the, the right things for the wrong reason. To impress others. Or to somehow think that you're making points with God by doing those things. All this, you know, the prophecy, the casting out demons, the performing miracles, they all appear to be good fruit. But even, even supernatural power does not equal fruit or the fact that a person saves. If, if you wonder about that, Acts chapter 19. Acts chapter 19, verses 13 through 16. We won't take the, the time to read it. But um, this is a familiar, I don't know if you've heard of this or not, but the, the seven sons of Sceva who were attempting, and they were casting out demons, but they came to one where there was actually a demon, one demon, one man, and he, they attempted to try to throw the demon out by using Jesus' name and Paul's name. And the demon says, I know Jesus, I know Paul, who are you? And they end up all seven running out of the house naked and bleeding. Don't mess with that. Okay? So even, we think even supernatural, I did things. So, no. God is the one who decides. He's the one who says, I never knew you. I think it's sobering, the fact that many will say, Lord, Lord. And I'll be careful, because Satan loves to plant seeds of doubt in the believer. Okay? And we have to be, sometimes we see, you know, I'm I'm not quite sure. And that's something, feel free to go to God about. We need to. But be careful about the seeds of doubt. See, those who have come to faith in Christ, and when I say that, when you hear that phrase, this is what I mean. Okay, A person who is standing on, on one side of the huge chasm, and God is on the other side, and he is the righteous, holy God, and you realize that there is absolutely no way that I can jump from here to there safely. In fact, nobody can, because God is so righteous and holy. Not only that, but because of my... And, oh, I'm sorry. The reason for that chasm is my sin. My sin, his holiness. Okay? And not only that, not only is he over there because of his holiness, his wrath is on me. He is angry with me because of my sin. And because of my sin, Romans 6.23, I deserve death. It is hopeless. When you come to that point and you realize it's hopeless, then you have a beginning of understanding what salvation is. Because the only way, the only way you're going to make it across that chasm is by Jesus Christ. He's, he, God said, you know what? All these people, none of them, none of them are going to make it to me. I will send my son Jesus. That's what we celebrate at Christmas. His coming as a human being in the manger for us so that we can be with God. Then we realize, you know what? I can't make it across that chasm. I'm going to place my total faith in Jesus Christ that he did it for me. Then we have beginning understanding what salvation is. Then we can cross the line from death to life. And we can be assured of that. See, sometimes some of these things kind of rattle you and think, am I really saved? 
You know what? If you came to faith in Christ and you acknowledge that you understand that, you are. God decides who is and who isn't. But we can be confident that. For one thing, Jesus says in John chapter 10, no one can ever snatch them out of my hand. You're safe there. No one jumped into his hand. Nobody jumped out. Nobody can snatch him out. We're safe. In Ephesians 1, uh, chapter, chapter 1, verse 13, we are sealed by the Holy Spirit. We are secure in that. So I want to assure you of that because I know that sometimes we come to the verses and we see the drama that was played and we're like, oh, I better go home and do it again. No. No, no, no. Okay? Uh, bring that before the Lord and come with the assurance that we know and we're sure of our faith in Christ. These verses indicate sadly, I think, that some will think they have secured a place in heaven. See, they bought the fire insurance, pay the premiums by showing up in church once in a while and smiling at people, and you're good to go. Not so. It's not how it works. Uh, They've deceived themselves. Never mind, you've deceived other people around you. That's easy. You can do that. It's yourself that's deceived. That's more dangerous. Self-examination won't fix it. Did you get that? Self-examination is not going to fix it. It's like trying to search for the cause or the cure for that fatal disease that you don't know you have and you don't feel any symptoms for. If God so chooses to move in your heart and to reveal himself to you, then you have the opportunity to respond. And you're hearing it. You're hearing it today. Very few people in America today have not heard the message of salvation. Most have refused it and rejected it. And it isn't just simply about changing behavior. We have to be careful with this because we, we get hung up on that. Somehow we think that the Christian, you know, those people, they're the good people and, they, and the reason they are is because they act good and, and it's just a, a vicious circle. Well, it's not so. That's simply behavior modification. Jesus is not talking about behavior modification in the Sermon on the Mount. Can you hear that? He's not talking about behavior modification. Behavior modification is this. It's when the police officer who pulls you over, he doesn't care whether you know, understand, or accept, or feel comfortable with the law that says stop at a stop sign. He is there. He just requires that you modify your behavior, period. Behavior modification. Or the toddler who repeatedly misbehaves and does so because he doesn't fully understand the consequences, nor does he agree with the rules that you put in place. (laughs) That's when you resort to behavior modification. The person who says to God, I'll follow your rules, just tell me what to do, that's the person to whom God will say that simple behavior modification, I never knew you. And notice he doesn't say, I don't know you. He said, I never knew you. Depart from me. That's an Old Testament quote from Psalm chapter 6, verse 8. And it's a command. It's not just being left behind or being forgotten. It is actively sent to destruction. Chilling words. It's kind of like a judge. You're sitting in the courtroom and everybody's sitting there waiting to hear what the sentencing will be. And he says, I hereby sentence you to death. Wow. But thank you, Lord. By his power, by God's mighty power, we don't have to hear those words. Amen? That is, that is something to relieving to me. We don't have to hear that there is a way 
It's narrow and it's hard, but there is a way. In his next illustration, Jesus uses an illustration of houses or foundations. Beginning in verse 24, Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house and it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. First we said in verses 13 and 14, recognize the one true way, beware of the wrong path. And verses 15 through 20, uh, we said recognize the good fruit, beware of the false prophets. And then third, uh, verses 21 through 23, recognize true salvation, beware of false claims. Here, recognize the solid rock, beware of a weak foundation. The visual here is strong. See, things look fine on the outside. Give it some paint, throw up some siding, good to go. We have put on a good front. In the end, the storms reveal the true foundation. And the foundation is built, how? Is it right there? By hearing and doing what Jesus taught in this sermon. Couldn't be any clearer. Religious practice or bad fruit, unstable salvation. I'm, I'm sorry, unstable foundation. Real obedience motivated by a repentant heart, stable foundation. James echoes these words in James 1.22, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. The key words here are in verse 24, hear and does. It's that simple. Or is it? This causes a dilemma. Who could possibly do perfectly everything that Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount? I haven't. You haven't. But what do we do with that? This, my friends, is, is where God's grace is most evident. We're all failures. We don't see it or we don't admit it, but we do. Now, this doesn't mean we just throw up our hands and give up and say, can't do it, going to give up. No, but a constant, consistent pursuit of finding out what God's will is. Ephesians 5 says to do that. It says, find out, search for what God's will is. And it isn't us. When we search for that, we're going to find out it's not us because in and of ourselves, trying to be good, trying to do all that, we know we're going to come up short. It is Christ in us. And this is, this is a lifetime you say, you know, I've heard it before, don't, don't quite get it. Understand that because I think all of us as human beings take a lifetime to understand what that means. Galatians 2.20 kind of encapsulizes it. It says, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by, the faith, by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Isn't that relieving to hear? I have to do all that. It's Christ in me. And the more that I'm yielded to him and acknowledging him and seeking him, the more he is able to live through me. Quit trying. 
trying so hard. I know, especially sometimes I think believers do that, you know. I, and I've had people tell me that, you know, I, I, I would like to become a Christian, but I'm just not good enough. <laughs> you never will be. Quit trying. Acknowledge that it is Christ working through us. Someone once said, the Sermon on the Mount cannot be achieved, it must be lived. You get the difference? The Sermon on the Mount cannot be achieved, it must be lived. And this danger that Jesus is speaking out is what we would call behavior modification. That is building your house on the sand. I think we all try, have been guilty of that before, perhaps, trying to be good. Show up at church, give to charities, be nice to kids, follow the rules. But doing these things does not make a person Jesus' true disciple. It is evidence of a genuine faith. See, up front, our, our behavior is what everybody sees, okay? our, our words and our actions. But behind that, see, you take a step back. Behind that behavior, there is the, um, the attitudes... Um, there's the agreement with what God says. There are the, the pure motives um, that move those actions. But you get to step, take a step even further back because behind that is what it says in passages, hearing God's word. So hearing and understanding what God says, that means a, a diligent study of God's word. Let me take it from the back and front again. Okay, so back here when he says hearing, I'm studying, I'm understanding. I'm not just learning so I can memorize or, or I can know everything about a passage. No, no, no. I'm hearing and understanding what God's word says. And because of that, a true understanding, then I begin to agree with it. And agreeing with it means I acknowledge that some of those things I hear in God's word are a applied to me. It's so much easier to pick up some Bible and start leafing through and picking out verses. Man, I can think of anybody, everybody else that that applies to. As soon as I have done that, then I have missed told the reason for having God's Word coming to my mind and my heart. Because it's meant for me. Okay, so I'm, I'm, I not only uh, hear and understand, I take the time to study God's Word. I'm, I'm allowing and agreeing uh, allowing God's word to enter my mind and my heart and agreeing with and allowing change, my motives change, then the fruit becomes a changed behavior. Then I begin to say things and act in a way that honors God. Too often we start with the front. And we say, you've got to change. You've got to quit acting. You know, you've got to do this. You've got to get rid of that and everything like that. And that's behavior modification. That's not what Jesus is talking about in the Sermon on the Mount. He's saying, start back here. Hear the word. Okay? Make sure you understand it. Then, as you understand it, realize there's going to be some changes necessary. Okay? And we also hear, this is difficult. The one, I think the middle one probably is the hardest one for us. Because there's, so, there's a temptation for deflection or making excuses. Isn't there? It's like, you know, I, I know what that is, I know it is, but, you know, I'm just not that point in my life. Or, you know, I, I would like to be nice to those people, but they're not nice to me, so, hey, that's deflection. That's saying it's somebody else's fault that I haven't grown up yet. Right? That's the hardest part, I think. And I don't think it's a linear process. We do the back, and then we're in the middle, and we get up to the front, and then all of a sudden our behavior... I think it's cyclical. At least for me, I think it goes on and on and on and on, because we constantly have been being, being changed into the likeness of Christ. As soon as we learn one lesson, 
Hello. Don't get up here and have some change behavior and say, made it. Y'all looking at me? Because you know what? That pushes right back to the beginning. Begin to study and understand God's word. See how it affects me. Allow it to sink deeply into my heart. This effort must be on our part. It's choosing, for instance, to turn from temptation. It's seeking to love other people. It's not saying, let go and let God. I'm not saying that. Um, if that's the case, we suffer from the misguided concept that since it's God at work in us, there's very little we must do. That's not true. Now, while the other performance-based extreme is just as misguided, this is probably more subtle. Paul writes to the Philippians, he says, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. See, it's both and. He doesn't say, work, I'll work out for you, your own salvation. No, 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 no. He says, work out. Make it happen. It's like, you don't, you don't enroll in classes, uh, pay the tuition, show up in class, and then expect to be handed a diploma. <laughs> no. You do the work. That's what God is looking for. The role we play in our sanctification is both passive and it's active. It's God changing us, and we are seeking to obey him as well. And we don't compare ourselves to other Christians either. This is a trap we have to be careful not to fall in. As soon as we say, I'm all right, I'm certainly a lot better than the majority of the people around me, you're on the sand. Looks okay now, but I tell you what, the storms will come. Behavior is important to God. Let's, not, let's, let's make sure we understand that. Matthew chapter 5, verse 16, we heard about that. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works. That is important to God. But not doing it in our own strength. Acknowledging that it's Him. It's Him working through us. And allowing him to do that. Allowing him to make those changes. It's some, too often it's just our stubborn will. It's the human will. We, we understand it. We've heard it since childhood. And we know those things. And our will says, but I don't want to. <laughs> you ever hear, you ever done it with a child or anything like that? If you, those of you that had children, but I don't want to. I, I get it. It's one of those things where I get that. Because that's what I do to God. I understand what he wants me to do, but my will. And it's surrender. So many times when we pray, and I've experienced this in corporate prayer as well, what we pray for is surrender. And not just for the people around us, but for our own lives as well. And, and not just a one time, I'm going to surrender and this is it and I'll be good to go. I tell you what I needed every day. A daily surrender to him. Without that, I mean, you look at the Sermon on the Mount, and there's no way. You go try to do that even one day. Even one day of the Sermon on the Mount on your own, you will fail. I will fail. Anyone will fail. We have to do it through Christ working in us and allowing him to do that. The last two verses are Matthew's addition to Jesus' sermon, where he says in verses 28 and 29, when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority, and not as their scribes. Matthew concludes with this resounding statement. The sermon was based on the authority of God Almighty, not simple tradition. 
and not the, what the scribes is just repeating what they had heard before. See, obeying these sayings or Jesus' teachings, that forms the basis for the foundation that we need, a rock-solid foundation. And I mentioned at the beginning that we have felt that. We, we have felt those storm surges, and I can relate to that. I know that. We know that many times. Sometimes we pray, and, and God, you know what? God in his grace at times does still the storm. Matthew chapter 8, you would find that happening. And I believe sometimes we, we need to pray. God, can you please, is there, is there any way? Would you be willing to remove this? But sometimes God just says, no, this is the storm surge that's coming. I've given you a good foundation. You have the opportunity for that. What are you going to do with it? And as we as believers especially need to be continually building that foundation by that process of hearing and understanding God's word. And then letting it sink in, listening well, listening to how this applies to me and allowing changes in my, in my thoughts and my motives and then realizing then the behavior change because then when that storm comes, when that storm surge hits, the foundation's there. It's still going to be a bad storm. It still is going to be a bad storm. But the foundation is, pure, is solid. No one likes the storm, since it's, it threatens all we hold precious. But I tell you what, the real encouragement for us in this passage is the assurance that our foundation can be rock solid. Hearing and understanding God's word shows us that we need to agree and allow his word to penetrate and to change our motives and attitudes which then leads to words and actions that truly honor him. That's building on the rock. Would you pray with me? Our God and Father in heaven, we thank you for your reminder from Scripture this day for what you are teaching us. And in saying that, Father, we realize how much we have to learn. Lord, there's so much in our lives we realize that we try to do on our own. That's just human nature. We acknowledge that and confess that. And in saying that, Lord, we plead, may it be Christ living in us. May we stop with this, this just trying hard and trying hard and instead seek after you because you promised, Lord. You promised. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you'll find. We cling to that. We cling to that foundation, Father, of you, of you and the, the gift that you've given us, Jesus Christ, your Son. We commit each one of ourselves to you this day. We pray this in Jesus' name.